Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Our guest today is Muya Musokotwani. He's building Nkwashi, a private city in Zambia that will house 100,000 residents. In this episode, we discuss what it means to build a private city, how to jumpstart an economy for that city, as well as what Africa needs to do to generate economic development. Welcome to the show, Muya. Thanks for having me. So to start, tell me a little bit about Nkwashi. What are you building? So we're building a satellite town to Lusaka. Uh, it's basically a private city that we're building, anchored by education and technology-based services. So we just launched the first phase of that economic anchorage this last month. We launched Explorer Academy, which is a tech hub. So it's part Lambda school in that it trains people to be software developers and digital designers. And then it's part Andela-like in that it then deploys those people into actual jobs once they graduate. So it's part staffing company and part so like skills or vocational training. Cool. And so what does it mean to build a private town to build a satellite city? So the first step is uh, one acquires a large enough tract of land. In our case, we're lucky enough to have previously owned a cattle ranch, about 3,100 acres in size. And then we master plan that into a medium density community. Right? So about 100,000 individuals will live in Kwashi. And it's not just a gated community in the sense that we're just building residential dwellings. It's a town in the sense that we also accommodate commercial development. We also have recreational facilities designed into the development. We also have bulk infrastructure that we're building to support all these various types of activity. And what's the timeline? How long does it take to build a satellite city to build a a large town? It really depends on what sort of economic tailwind you have. So if you're in a country that has a booming economy, I imagine something that could be done in under 10 years. But if you are building it in a place like Zambia, which uh, right now has had several economic challenges, it takes a lot longer. So our initial estimate when the economy was doing much better in Zambia was about 10 years. And now our view is that it's going to take at least another 10 years in addition to the original 10 years before this is actually fully finished. And so where does the demand come from? Why do Zambians, assuming your resident population, your target population is Zambians, why do they want to live in Akwashi? What is the value proposition that you're offering them? So there's a couple of things. One is that we have structural demand factors. There's a large and very deep housing deficit in Zambia. So there aren't enough homes relative to the demand for homes. So that's one. The second thing is people want to live in well-designed well-serviced communities where they have access to the type of things that most people in advanced economies take for granted. So running water, you know, that's piped to your home, good roads, electricity, green spaces, parks, schools, and such like. Many sort of like emergent communities in and around big cities in Zambia, as is the case across Africa, 
are what we call subserviced in the sense that they might have a dirt road on the street as opposed to a paved road. Often they will have to drill their own borehole, right? So you have to create your own water supply. You will have to also create a septic tank on your site. So you deal with your own solid waste disposal. You deal with your own sewage treatment on site. They'll also often have to then engage the the electricity utility themselves and say, hey, I'm building my home. I need to have access to a transformer or to an electricity line. And then they'll have to make those connections themselves, uh, often working hand-in-hand with the utility. So there's a lot of DIY involved in the way that people currently sort of like build their housing. Whereas what we're building is something that's much more typical of what you'd see in the US or other such advanced economies where a person literally just plugs in and doesn't have to think about all the other considerations. So then I guess the one way to sort of summarize it is, I mean, you are sort of creating these public goods that are often taken for granted in more developed economies, but in Zambia and other parts of Africa and the global south don't have access to sort of good roads to clean water. And when they do have access, it requires basically a high upfront unit cost to do it. And so effectively by creating this large subdivision, you can lower the cost of hooking up to various public services. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, building out this infrastructure is expensive. So how do you finance it? So thus far, we've been financing it by doing commercial sales of properties, right? So we sell the subdivisions. We typically do this over extended payment plans, so they don't have to pay cash for the total consideration. Instead, they pay for the land over between five and 20 years, depending on the individual. And so we then take about five years to develop each unit. Most emerging markets don't have really fully developed financial sectors. So is there a mortgage market? Like, how do you do this? What does the balance of risk look like? Yeah, there's a mortgage market in Zambia, but it's very small. And also the cost of credit is pretty high. So interest rates right now, on average, are above 25% per annum, right? So it's just not commercially practical for a person to basically use a mortgage as a means of financing their home at the moment. And so what we've done basically is disintermediate the banks and then provide access to that credit directly to the end user, assume the credit risk. We also assume the development risk. But on the flip side, we, we've got means of managing that. And what's your background? What were you doing before building in Kwashi? Prior to doing this, I was working as a research analyst at a relatively large local pension fund management company. So I did that for a couple of years, largely covering economic research as well as equities. And how does that skill set carry over to building a city? There's a lot of quantitative research involved in building out the models. And so I think the skill set is largely the same. The parameters change in the sense that you know you have to build all these bills of quantities and understand what the different input costs are and model out expectations for economic performance and how that plays out into your various types of risk management frameworks. But yeah, I'll probably say that the skill sets flow through. And how do you attract talent to help develop Nkwashi? Does that talent exist? Do you have to train them? What does that look like? So for the most part, we typically hire locally, and then we spend a couple of years training people. So we have a very, I guess, low turnover rate. We tend to prefer to stick with people for the long haul, largely because a lot of the, the skills required to do what we do, you know, people working in uh, formal real estate or or finance will have a very different expectation as to how to 
actually build what we're building. You know, it's one thing to model something out. It's another thing to actually then deal with suppliers and deal with a very dynamic operating environment. So having people start at a relatively so like junior level and then grow into the positions is generally our preference. And who is doing the actual physical construction? So we're doing that ourselves. We have a civil works department. So build out all the bulk on our behalf. So all the earthworks are done internally, building roads done internally, building the dam was done internally. But we outsource certain elements. So for example, almost all the design is done externally. We use external engineers to audit our work. We used external urban planners to design the master plan. So culture is often talked about as sort of like a foundational aspect for a company. Ben Horowitz's recent book, was it like you are what you do, uh, sort of really drives that point home. How do you think about culture in terms of one, building the team that's executing on Quashi, and then two, developing the culture for the city itself? I think one is easier than the other. It's easier to build the culture of the team. Building the culture of the city is a little bit different because you aren't fully in control of who actually buys property from you, right? So you're not going to be screening them to determine whether they have values that align with yours, whether they have you know the type of skills that you want the city to be known for. Those are things which are very random. But managing culture within the context of an organization is relatively easier in that you can sort of like filter on the basis of parameters that suit you. With the city, I think it's a lot harder to do that. However, building institutions that allow for that is the easiest way to do so. So Explorer Academy, for example, does this. So we interview every single student who applies to determine whether this fit and whether they have the sort of values that we want our fellows to be known for. And the expectation is that once they go through our program and are then placed into a job, eventually they'll then have to relocate and live at Nkwashi and work from there. And that's the way that we can then build out a community that has values that are aligned to our own and then extending that across various types of disciplines. So we've started with digital design and web development, mobile development, and game development. But that will eventually be extended to things like civil engineering and architecture and eventually medicine and such like. So we will have a wide spectrum of disciplines in which people are practicing their craft but all share similar values and expectations. What are those values and expectations you're trying to inculcate in the city? So there are values that we use internally, and our view is that those values should generally be expressed in society as a whole. So things like relentlessness, openness, dynamism, excellence, equitability. So we want those things to be expressed in how we do things. So we want our residents to really be good at whatever it is that they do. We want people to be open-minded and to sort of like be pragmatic about how they solve for problems. Uh, we want people to be creative and expressive. We want the whole community to operate at a level of, I guess, excellence that of pound for pound competes fairly well with the, the best in class in the world. There isn't that much, I think, I guess, discussion about it, but cities tend to have their own culture. If you go to Dubai, for example, I've heard people use the term Mars shot unironically in Dubai. I mean, San Francisco, there's this general sense of intellectual curiosity, wanting to explore a lot of ideas. 
DC, it's sort of like all about politics all the time. And I think, right, like, as you already mentioned, the company, you can fire people who don't exemplify those cultures. You can't really force people to move, but there still is a way to, I guess, seed a culture in a geographic location that exemplifies itself in sort of how people think and how people act. Absolutely. And I think institutions are the way that gets done, right? So institutions and networks. So in the case of DC, you know, the federal government is and its various departments are all based there. In the case of places like New York, it's the presence of art houses and finance and various types of commerce. In San Francisco, it's the fact that you have such a strong funding network for for venture businesses and that requires people to be relatively explorative about the types of things that they want to build because ultimately that's what the capital is chasing. So institutions create incentives for this type of behavior development. And so within the context of Africa, building out a culture of excellence requires that you are able to interface with people in the rest of the world known for excellence. And so within the context of Explorer Academy and any other institutions we'll be creating like it, the goal is to enable people to work remotely from Nkwashi and other cities that we build, but for global companies where those types of operating assumptions right, are taken as a standard and that will help import that type of culture into Nkwashi. And so why did you choose to focus um, information technology as the anchor tenant? The reason is that right now, technology represents a big segment of overall market cap, so like global listed companies, right? So the top five tech companies are worth something like $5 trillion. The top 100 mining companies. I think they probably were like three months ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. The top 100 mining companies are worth less than $500 billion, right? So Unquashi isn't sitting on a large oil deposit or a large mineral deposit. So we can't have extractive industries as the anchor. There's not a big enough community to make agriculture the, the heart of it. and making industrial businesses the heart of it requires substantially more capital because you have to build out factories and then attract people there and the sort of like national level incentives just aren't there to do so whereas with technology zambia is a low-income country which means wages here and expectations for income are much lower than they would be elsewhere in the world so you know a, a mid-level software developer in the u.s can expect to earn upwards of $60,000 a year to, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. In Zambia, you know, that same developer would probably be earning fifteen dollars to $20,000 a year. And if their skills are matched with the same developer who would be sitting in the US or in Europe, the economic incentive for a prospective employer ought to be to hire the cheaper labor unit. So we figured that that labor arbitrage is a big incentive for global employers. And therefore, the, the easiest way for us to create a labor market in Kwashi. And then the second thing is that because these individuals would be working for global businesses, they wouldn't be exposed to local economic challenges. It wouldn't matter whether the economy here is booming or it's doing badly. Kwashi would have its own balance of payments infrastructure with the rest of the world through this institution. And so that insulates us pretty significantly. And then to the extent that we can also then create robust institutions like local pension schemes at Inquashi, venture funds based at Inquashi, then we can also start to see capital formation happening 
largely financed by the labor that we're creating. And so then you start creating a financial system as well. And, you know, the flywheel, it starts turning. So we've had this discussion, I guess, a few times. Why is mercantilism good? (laughs) (laughs) I think mercantilism works for smaller economies because it's easier for you to sort of like attach yourself to a larger economy that sees value and the sort of goods or services you'd be providing. And then in addition to that, to the extent that you have a positive trade balance with said economies, you can, you know, create capital really quickly. And I think Singapore is probably like the best example of this, right? So it's over the last 40, 50 years, they've been able to create something like a half trillion dollars worth of surplus capital, largely by positioning themselves as a mercantilist style economy where exports are so like prime focus and the whole economy is just built around exporting both services and goods to the rest of the world. And if one is to build a small private economy, I think that's the way to do it. Servicing the local economy will be much harder just purely because it's more fragile. So let's get into that then. What does the Zambia economy look like? What are like in terms of what the the core industries are, what its economic outlook is, both short-term and long-term, and how does Nkwashi fit into those? So the overall fundamentals have been generally strong over the last about 20 years. So like historically speaking, at least for Zambia, exports have been growing labor productivity being on, on the up, agricultural productivity has been growing. And so the numbers have generally looked solid. The big challenge has been over the last about seven to eight years, the country's grown its debt stock pretty aggressively to the point where we were starting off at around you know sub 15% of GDP in 2012. And we're now sitting at about 95% of GDP right now. And so there's no more fiscal space for the government. And that's because uh, a lot of this debt is external debt. It's starting to negatively affect the balance of payments. And it's also starting to negatively affect the government's ability to service its own obligations. So payroll and its other general sort of like treasury ops have suffered. And so that's starting to affect the economy in the sense that aggregate demand is basically being diminished because capacity is being exported, right? Um, the government's having to spend a lot of its income in servicing external debts. So that money, which would have otherwise been invested locally, is being exported. And so aggregate demand is shrinking. And as a consequence of aggregate demand shrinking, jobs are starting to get shed and it's creating this sort of like negative secular trend. And so from my point of view, that's not a situation I want to be sort of like captive to. So if we can build an economy within the broader economy, but one that's not dependent on the economic fundamentals of the host country, then we'll be in a position where it doesn't really matter where the boom is taking place, where it's a bust. Yeah, I mean, typically with charter cities, we think a little bit more about, I guess, uh, manufacturing as the way to export, but Zambia's landlocked, so our transportation costs are much higher. And if you look at the manufacturing phases that are doing well in Africa, it's Rwanda and Ethiopia, both of which have relatively low labor costs. Zambia's labor costs aren't super low compared to like Africa or East Asia, which I guess gives the sort of more credence to the uh, focusing on, on service exports. Yeah, that's definitely correct. I think industrial capacity could still be a credible means of building out a charter city in Zambia or other landlocked countries. It's just a question of what's being produced, right? So I think Switzerland would be a good example of the type of industry one would want to create if you're a landlocked. So 
really high value goods. You don't need high amounts of you know production volumes to support the industries because they're very high value. And then also high value services. So in the case of Switzerland, that's you know banking and finance, insurance, commodities trading and things of that sort. And that's the heart of their you know economy. It's, it's that high value manufacturing, things like watches and mechanisms and such like. Yeah. How does Unquashi interact with the government in terms of getting, I guess, like sort of permits to build in terms of my understanding is you're plugged into the, say, power grid. So what is your relationship? What does it look like? So we generally prefer to keep a, a good relationship with the government. So we do other things that are required of us. And as far as like things like permitting and so on and so forth, we just follow the normal channels. So if we want to build something, we have to submit a, an application to our district council, which is basically the municipal body that covers us to the extent that the particular thing we want to build or plan for is outside of the scope of the local government would typically then take it straight to the central government through their planning department. So yeah, it's straightforward. We'll just deal as is required of us. And how do you think about governance of Unquashi? Ignoring, for example, assume you get, ignoring the fact that you might get charter city status, just like, okay, let's assume in 10, 20 years, you've got 100,000 people living there. How do they make decisions based about, I guess, sort of city level of resource allocation? What does that look like? It's a difficult question to answer, partly because we haven't, we're not at the stage where we have to really critically think of all those things just yet because we're just trying to build infrastructure right now. But we have spent some time thinking about the questions and our current answer, giving ourselves scope to actually sort of like evolve our thinking, is that we would probably go Dubai style in the sense that it will be much more centralized decision making. You want to create enough openness that people have the ability to do whatever they want, but you also want to ensure that whatever values we want people to adhere to are enshrined into the bylaws for the community. So, you know, things like strictness around partying or littering or loitering or design aesthetics for homes, the type of events would, you know, be happy to host at Tinkwashi, things of that sort, you know, for those would be very, you know, strict. Outside of those things, I think we'll just basically stick with what the law of the land says. And assuming you get charter city status, you basically get a blank slate to create a separate legal jurisdiction. What advantages would that bring you? I think the biggest advantages would be optimizing our economic infrastructure to allow for further investment into the community. So things which would be important to us are labor mobility, so enabling people from anywhere in the world to you know have a fast-track immigration process creating institutions that allow for adjudication locally, whereas right now our working assumptions are that you know, will definitely require arbitration where there's conflict and those, you know, the arbitration entities would be either local or where the counterparty wants to port those outside of the country, they'll be ported to a domicile like the UK where they could then be dealt with. Why would Augustus build a, would Augustus build a good charter city? I think so. Why? He was a very, surprisingly, I think he was a very values-driven sort of like decision maker. So he cared a lot about who was in the Senate, why, you know, he cared about things like making sure old Roman values were sort of like subscribed to by the broader society. He had massive building projects that he did, you know, built out aquifers, he built out temples and various types of uh, sort of like infrastructure. And I think that basically suggests that he was trying to create a great society. 
you know, the project wasn't just, I want to rule and, you know, get rich. I think his ambitions went beyond that. He was actually trying to build a civilization. And I think for those reasons, um, he would have made a, a great China City developer. I mean, in a sense, he redeveloped the whole of Rome, right? So he came to a city of brick and left it a city of marble. Yep. How have your general thoughts on city development evolved since starting Kwashi? I think of a much more healthy understanding, I think, of the the full sort of like scope uh, of what it means to actually build a city. Initially, I think a lot of my focus was on the residential development, so making sure I was selling subdivisions and hitting my uh, so like sales targets and my KPIs on development. And now I have a much more thorough understanding of the importance of building out the actual economy, because long-term, that's really what makes the place a viable community. What about urban planning? Have your thoughts on urban planning changed? They have in some ways. So I think going forward, I'd prefer to build out much more dense communities than has been the case with Kumkwashi, but also understand that that's a function of how much capital one has available to them. So if one wants to build highly dense communities, one must have sort of large enough war chest to actually pursue that because you have to build the, the housing and the apartments up front, whereas that wasn't the case with us. And I think the other challenge is there's a trend towards density and walkability, but in Africa, I think cars are still much more a status symbol than they are in the U.S., which might make it more challenging to move to a, a walkable neighborhood just because the sort of middle upper middle income families value the car as, as having that sort of status signifier. Absolutely. Though I also think that access to jobs is a much more important thing for people. And so, you know, if one can build out an engine that enables them to create new economies from scratch, that would be the first consideration. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I think it, building out the economic engine is way more important than I initially anticipated. Because most developers expect that third parties will build out those anchors, right? So they'll go out and market it to a factory and so on and so forth. But that means you are beholden to third parties. I think it's a lot easier if a city builder can create their own anchor and port that to wherever they need to build a city, because then they're in control of population agglomeration. What city inspires you the most? Right now, I'd say Singapore. Why? The whole place just feels very rational, right? So it's very clear that every single thing was thought out and done with specific intent. That systems work. Yeah, I think it's a masterpiece. Sure, it's very well governed, but I mean, right? Like Ross Dohat, his new book uh, on the decadent society. I think Singapore could, to a certain extent, be called decadent in the, the sense, right? Like you have extremely low birth rates. The society isn't really effectively reproducing itself. And so while it sort of functions very well, it doesn't have, I don't know, that level of excitement. I've never really thought, like, I want to live in Singapore. That's true. I think some of those things can be solved. So I think the birth rate, if the appropriate incentives were created earlier on, that could have been solved for. And as far as that culture is concerned, I think, again, creating institutions that can facilitate for cultural formation through things like the arts, that should have been a greater priority. But again, you know, those are the type of things would take you know, several decades to actually like successfully build out. And you know, the other thing is that Singapore is a multi-ethnic community. So how does one build out, say, artistic expression 
when they're you know at the junction of India, so like Indo culture and then so like cynic culture. It's a little bit difficult for them to be all things to all people. So I imagine that you know inevitably cultures, and it's also one city, right? So if if it was big enough, maybe it could have justified the formation of an internal artistic community like you know Hollywood or whatever. Uh, so it built its own version of that, but it's just too small. What are the binding constraints on Zambian development as well as African development more generally? I think the biggest one is access to capital. So that's definitely the most material binding constraint. The second one would be access to talent. Yeah, I think it's those two things. And then the third one is just purchasing power. Mm -hmm. Why not governance? I think governance can be dealt with. So most governments want development to happen. And I think to the extent that a developer can start showing success, accommodations can be made to create a well-governed city. So I think governance is much more solvable, whereas access to capital is a much more tricky problem to solve for. Um, local capital markets tend to be thin. You also have to deal with the local currency, which because there's not enough productivity in the economy will have higher costs of saved capital. If you borrow or raise from outside of the country, you now have FX risk to deal with and you have to guarantee a rate of return to your investor whilst generally making most of your money in local currency. So that, that's quite difficult. And that's one of the reasons why we like the idea of building out this mercantilist style economy in that we can actually then create a source of cash flows that aren't local, which helps manage those risks. Sure, but I want to push back on that a little bit more, right? Like in 1960, the per capita income of Ghana was higher than in South Korea. And South Korea still managed to develop. Additionally, you have a lot of African countries aren't exactly capital constrained. There's a lot of natural resource wealth that's just effectively siphoned off. And so regarding your point on talent, for example, right? Like Nigeria has a bunch of talent, but part of the reason Nigerian universities are poor is because the army effectively neutered them in the 70s and 80s because they were protesting against the military dictatorship. So the army intentionally made the universities less effective. Yeah, I don't know if you just have a response to that. No, I agree. Those are less, like macro level headwinds that one has to deal with. So you're right in that I think African countries are resource rich, but access to capital is still really important, right? So you can have a bunch of resource wealth in the ground, but if you don't have the money to develop a mine, or if you don't have the skills to build out the mine, there's nothing you can do but sell it to sort of like external parties or sell the rights to develop into external parties. And then they're incentivized to reduce the local tax rates. So they'll definitely like rip you off. And then, you know, to the extent that a government tries to build out local industrial capacity by having a strong SOE, so like centered economy, as was the case of many African countries post the 60s through the 70s. The challenge there is this human capacity, right? So you have a lot of people working on these things, first generation, and their mental models for efficiency and for wealth accumulation are all very new. So it's very difficult for them to actually make these things maximally productive. So there's a lot of waste. So an example is between 1970 and about 1999, Zambia's copper production fell from about 750 to about 800,000. Sorry, it was about 800,000 metric tons per year in 1970. And by 1999, I believe it was about 250,000 metric tons being dug up and exported. That's a very material you know, drop. 
And the reasons are, you know, it's largely mismanagement of the assets. There are no new mines being developed. There was no new investment into ensuring that the capex was being replaced on time. And so the capacity to just produce diminished. And, you know, the country had literally no one else to blame but itself for that. Right? The human capacity just wasn't there to operate those things at the time. And so, in a sense, it's a multifaceted problem. You have to solve all these things at the same time. And you also have to be somewhat patient. I think it's building out economies isn't something that happens in a decade for most people. I think it's, it's, it's a game of centuries. And Singapore and South Korea are outliers. Most of the world just hasn't developed that way. Yeah, I mean, I think the question of capacity building is an important one. This is sort of a question that frequently comes up in terms of special economic zones. How do you actually sort of develop them in an effective way for scale sharing to ensure that it's not a bunch of typically Westerners who sort of come in and operate them and then the locals have basically low-skill jobs providing services but don't actually gain the sort of long-term skills necessary to kind of like take over and export and sort of start their own businesses as well? Yeah, I think those are you know very fair considerations. And speaking to your point about Nigeria, part of the challenge that we have in Africa is that our countries are all very new, right? And for the most part, they are an amalgam of ethnicities which had nothing to do with each other, for the, uh, you know, and many of which didn't even like each other. And they're now forced to coexist within borders that they didn't draw, and also now forced to build out all these institutions. And so the politics has to take all those things into consideration. And additionally, you then have a group of rent seekers who emerge within these systems who don't want to share power. And so they take the position that if they enable local business houses to be enriched, they're enabling new kingmakers to emerge. And so it doesn't serve them to allow these cabals to be created. So they, they prefer to reduce local capacity, hence the underinvestment in universities that you spoke to. And hence the reason why many government contracts across Africa are typically awarded to foreign companies, right? So a government would prefer to deal with a Chinese state company than a local business house because the Chinese state company has got no political equity, right? So they're just here to do their job and leave. Whereas giving the contract to a, a large local firm may result in capital accumulation and therefore power transfer. And they don't want that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just the big sort of, I guess, political question. And you're seeing that a little bit right now in the U.S. over the last sort of several years where the Bay Area in California has become increasingly sort of wealthy and powerful and are beginning to demand something of a political voice. And the reaction from the East Coast, the Acela Quarter, has generally been very harsh. And you've seen what I perceive to be a kind of like unfair attacks on tech you have. For example, uh, this isn't really the East Coast, but Josh Howley sort of right critiques tech and says, "Why haven't you like gone to the moon?" And the sort of Peter Tia, like you promised flying cars and you gave us 140 characters, and it's like, well, like tech has at least given 140 characters. The rest of the country is still stuck in production modes from like 50 years ago. Yeah, that's exactly right. A lot of the pushback is basically entrenched parties trying to secure the positions. So the media has had a very sort of like powerful position in helping select and guide so like political candidates who become eventual leaders or shape their political narrative through stories and a lot of those sort of like privileged relationships and power is now threatened by tech firms who have significantly more reach and more financial resources than 
media houses that traditional media houses ever had. So a lot of this pushback is really just a function of people trying to secure the position. And it speaks to exactly to the same type of problem that we've seen in Africa. Hence my saying that, you know, building up great communities is something that typically happens over centuries. And yes, South Korea, Israel, and Taiwan, and others have done it in you know, record time, but those are exceptions. I don't think that's the norm. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, this is something that sort of, I guess it depends on what you mean, right? Like, even if you look at Europe, most of Europe had incomes that were basically 2,000 per capita at most around the year 1800. And so it's been two centuries. It hasn't, but if you look at sort of like the history, you can trace back the developments that sort of set the stage for the Industrial Revolution back uh, several more uh, centuries. But I, I wanted to, I guess, then touch a little bit more on the Silicon Valley point because you spent a decent bit of time out there. So what do you think like Silicon Valley understands about like city building? And then what do you think that they still don't fully appreciate? I think Silicon Valley is good at making markets. So they understand really well how to build out economies and how to do so really rapidly. What Silicon Valley doesn't understand as well is real estate. So, you know, building out brick and mortar and it's a function of business models, right? So, Silicon Valley typically prefers businesses that can grow really, really rapidly and then can have very low marginal unit costs and high margins in general. And real estate does, you know, generally doesn't work that way, traditional real estate at least. And then because city building is relatively, I guess, newish within the context of doing it for profit. So because of that, I think that the appreciation of the the fact that marginal unit costs in city building can actually also be reasonably low and profit margins reasonably high, that doesn't translate as well, just purely because people are used to working with bits versus earth. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. That's one thing that we've sort of increasingly been thinking about in the office is what does it mean to do real estate versus building a city? Because if you're actually developing a city, the additional unit cost of a resident is effectively zero. Right, like how much? What's the additional unit cost in New York of an additional person moving there? I mean, there's some private cost that is associated with the apartment in which they live, but the public infrastructure is all there, and unless it's really at sort of peak carrying capacity, it doesn't make a difference. There's an additional cost of right, like the burden on the courts and police. It's effectively extremely marginal, and so this is a challenge. I'm not entirely sure how to solve, but like, how do you sort of change the dynamic away from? We're building, right, like real estate that is here, we're building out sort of 20 square feet commercial real estate for somebody to work in a co-working space or whatever, versus that space has a defined input cost and then a defined amount that you can sell for and the margins are going to be relatively low, versus we are have a very high upfront investment cost to build out this infrastructure. And after this infrastructure is built out, you still have maintenance costs, but then the additional marginal unit of somebody going to use that infrastructure is actually quite low. Yeah, I think it's a function of being able to see through the financial model and identify all the different levers that generate income and also understand how each lever works. So some of the levers are less profitable than others, right? So an example of that is so like doing the land development. So you can buy reasonably low-cost land, let's call it for $2,000 an acre, develop it, and then sell it for upwards of $50,000 an acre. Right? So the marginal difference there, or the land cost, is pretty high. 
But then you also have to take into consideration the cost of making that development, which would easily be about $25,000. So your real gross profit margin is about 50%. And so you might make you know, relatively stable and uh, moderately high margins on that. But then you also have to then consider your other utility costs, the cost of servicing those. And because of you know, plain vanilla infrastructure, you're not really looking for really high margins. They're looking for stable income with moderate margins and a lot of growth potential into sort of like perpetuity. But then you also have other things like market making, right? So creating a labor market and being able to tax that, that's a really high margin business and it doesn't require a lot of physical infrastructure being built. So that would be a, you know, a really high source of IRR, like a great source of IRR for the overall development. And actually, in the medium to long term, that becomes the single highest, rather single largest source of both revenue and returns. And so, you know, it speaks to the nature of what a city is, and it's a marketplace, right? So it's a marketplace where you're solving for housing, you're solving for labor, so jobs, you're solving for access to opportunity and the ability to tax every single action that takes place within that community presents a really great source of, uh, of value. And I think that's a point that's often missed. Africa is supposed to have over 900 million new urban residents by 2050. How does that change Africa? Well, provided the continent continues growing at you know sub 7%, I think it's going to create a lot of social pressure. So there'll be a lot of joblessness. Uh, there'll be a lot of you know, so like overall higher geopolitical risks and tension, but there'll also be a lot of opportunity for people to build out goods and services that people want. So there'll be a lot of wealth created. So it'll be a very unequal community, but it'll be one with a lot of promise. What the continent really needs to do is get to a stage where it's growing in double digits for at least you know, 40 years, and thus far it's failed to do so. You sort of spoken on, on the need for like the challenge of investment, but specifically, what does it need to do? If you are, I don't know, king of Africa, what changes do you make to get to 7% plus GDP growth? And if you're unsuccessful, then what do those increasing social pressures look like? Because it's a continent and you're dealing with a pretty diverse range of contexts, right? So you've got mountain kingdoms like uh, Swaziland and Lesotho, and then you also have places like Ghana, Nigeria, which have access to the sea. There's loads of different answers. So I think one of the things that needs to happen in Africa is that there has to be a lot more top-level coordination amongst the countries, as well as a lot more local government involvement in building out the economies, because the local government knows what the challenges are much better than the sort of very top-level officials typically do. But the ability to solve for these problems is often neutered because they actually lack resources. And in addition to that, what often happens is that rural communities, where a lot of the value often sits, often governed by people whose training and capacity is very questionable. And that's because there's a lot of brain drains. Right? So people often talk about branding within the context of people leaving one country to go elsewhere. But it happens within countries as well. So a guy who was born in a rural area doesn't want to live there his whole life. He has to go to a big city. And so you know that leaves lower capacity people to deal with the problems of those places. And there's just no incentive for people living in the city to actually solve for those problems because they're busy with their own lives. So there has to be a lot more intentional investment into human capacity in these rural places where people understand the problems and opportunities can be developed that solve for those problems. But there also has to be top-level coordination. So a lot of African countries are really 
small, you know, in the sense that the economies aren't particularly large. So Zambia is like a $30 billion GDP economy. Ethiopia is sub $100 billion. Egypt isn't very large either. Uh, Nigeria, with almost like 200 million people, is a $400 billion economy. And, you know, at $400 billion, that's about Houston or Miami in the U.S. And they have significantly smaller populations. So solving for Africa's problems requires a lot more so like continental integration to create common markets. And uh, some of the infrastructure for that is being built. So there's a continental free trade agreement that was enacted last year. But we also need things like, you know, fewer stock exchanges. So like, you know, one or two very large ones that everybody can plug into. A common regime for securities registration and, and trading. A common regime for things like taxes. A common regime for laws. So creating a single polity, in essence, I think is what needs to happen. And that can be done through law, and it can be done through finance. So you know, financial institutions being aligned to that vision. And then the third part, I think, is the creation of Pan-African infrastructure. So pipelines, railways, roads, things of that sort. And you know, some of this doesn't necessarily always have to be built. So some countries just don't need a railway built between the two of them because the geography just doesn't support it. But you know, where it's rational to build out that infrastructure, it certainly should. So the problem that's happening now is that every country is too busy focused on its own local problems, and that prevents the synergies from forming. Is China helping? In some ways, yes. So there's a lot more infrastructure that's been built. But again, oftentimes this infrastructure is rationalized for the local so like needs. So there's no integration. So as an example, South Africa has its own railway system, Zimbabwe has its own railway system, Zambia has its own railway system. Back in the 1800s, Cicero Rhodes wanted to build a sort of Cape to Cairo system, but there's been no investment in that vision since you know the colonial administrations left. But it absolutely makes sense for those railway systems to be integrated. You know, and China isn't necessarily pursuing that vision because it's not in its direct interest to do so. That's something that African countries should be dealing with. I think China's built out infrastructure in places where it has a strategic interest to do so. So Kenya being one, yeah. Do you expect to see a blowback against Belt and Road? No, I don't think so. Largely because China's approach to politics is very so like impartial. They don't really care who's in charge. They don't really interfere much. And for the most part, the infrastructure is, is wanted. And so it's typically well-received. Historically, Chinese investments, you know, have faced a lot of blowback for things like labor policies. Let's talk about this new scramble for Africa. So how is, right, like sort of increasing U.S. involvement? They redesigned OPEC, to now be the Development Finance Corporation, double its budget. And you also see Turkey, Russia, everybody sort of hosting this Africa summit these days. I think overall it's good because it shows that there's a desire to engage with the continent. It's also unlocking access to capital for a lot of business people and projects. So overall, it helps facilitate broad-based economic growth. The thing that's missing is so like regional agenda for the continent. So the continent doesn't have its own foreign policy, doesn't have its own even domestic policy because that's sort of like very decentralized. Yeah, and that's not really helpful because the nature of the problems that we'll be facing are such that they're international. You know, if the Sahel becomes even more desert, that affects countries that neighbor those countries. If rainfall patterns in Kenya change and there's a lot more desert growing there, eventually, so like nomadic farmers in Kenya will start 
migrating into Tanzania and Uganda, and that starts creating problems for those countries. And so being much more alive to the fact that coordination is important is a, you know, something I'd like to see. Are you optimistic that, that coordination will happen? I think maybe in the next generation it could happen, but right now, no. And I guess for the last question, what is the movie production function? Like, how do you work? How do you sort of make sure that you're getting the most out of yourself? It's a good question. So I don't really have very, so like normal, I guess, working hours. So I'll work when everybody else is working in the office, like typically nine to five, but I'll often then take my work home with me. And so I'll do another two, three hours there. I generally don't distinguish between weekdays and weekends. So I'll, I'll work, you know, <laughs> through the weekend as well. But sometimes... Yeah, your wife loves that. <laughs> she's a really a fan. But I generally try to keep Sundays as a family day. And then, you know, how I work typically doesn't actually follow a pretty programmed so like set of activities. If I'm in like cerebral mode, because I have to do a lot of thinking, uh, I'll probably like do a lot of walking and so like isolate myself because I just want mental clarity. So sometimes I don't really do a lot of like actual typing or engaging with that sort of work. I'll just be thinking. And then sometimes I'm just like really busy modeling things out or, or writing or on site uh, inspecting stuff. So it just really just depends on the immediate needs and so like broader strategic priorities. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.